And welcome to Thursday Night Talk. Tonight, it's Thursday Night Talk, the race beat with our host, Lorna Bryant. As always, we welcome your contributions. Give us a call at 826-4805 at 800-640-5911 or to our text line at 492-KHSU. Thank you for tuning in to Thursday Night Talk, the race beat, a place for in-depth discussions about race, culture, and identity. Through conversations and understanding, we will discover our differences really aren't so different. Tonight, our discussion will focus on Latina scholars in Humboldt County. My guest tonight is Jessica Brenda Perez-Mendoza. Brenda is a PhD student in Latin American Studies at National Autonomous University of Mexico. In the fall of 2017, she was a guest researcher at the Department of Anthropology of Humboldt State University. She currently works with Central de Pueblo, a dreammaker project of the Ink People. She is also co-host of a weekly local talk show, Charlando con la Raza, which airs locally on Radio Bilingue at 103.3 FM. Brenda, welcome and thank you for joining me this evening. Thank you for this invitation. So, you're from Mexico. You are a student at Latin American, uh, excuse me, National Autonomous University in Mexico. Uh, what area of Mexico uh, is that university? It's Mexico City. Ah, okay. So southern Mexico, uh, towards the southern end of Mexico, and you come all the way to the tippy top of uh, California. What brought you here to Humboldt State? What brought me here is um, the marijuana studies. I understood that HSU has an institute about that, specialized about that, and I wanted to know what what they have in the archives and what are the topics they are developing. So was that something you were studying um, in Mexico City? Yes, that's right. Okay, and what were the areas specifically of your studies uh, around marijuana? I'm studying politics, the war on drugs in Mexico, and I want to make a comparison between California and Michoacan down there. Wow. And uh, what have you found in your find, in your studies thus far? I find it, what I find I think and the most important to me is that violence occurs there and here in different weight and levels, but still violence. Here, well, a lot of farmers are developing resistance and resilience. And there they are just under the harassment of criminals. So, um, uh, yeah, both sides are very affected by this economy of marijuana, legal or illegal. Well, the, the one stark difference is um, people aren't running from the violence, seeking asylum here. Um, they're not running from Humboldt County to other locations in Mexico uh, due to the the drug violence and violence in general you have folks seeking asylum that's uh, a crucial part I'm sure that you're you're studying yeah definitely and during my field work in Michoacan I I had to present to be in presence of the sufferance of entire families that has to flee to the U.S. and I know they are here and my concerning, my principal concerning is to think of them like they escaped from there to come in here to look for a second chance and now they are under the target of the discrimination, the racial discrimination in the U.S. 
Absolutely. Uh, we see that uh, on a national scale, and it has actually uh, filtered into our small community here in Humboldt County. And that takes us to the work that you, uh, you do. You completed your studies here at Humboldt State, and you've secured a job. Uh, I'm guessing you were slated uh, to return back to Mexico um, at the completion of this school year. But you're here, and it's July. Um, what what brought us to this point where we are right now? When I finished my engagement, my scholar engagement at HSU, I just find a very big group of activists here in Humboldt County, and I just find a sisterhood in Rene Saucedo, and she invited me, you know, to to continue this these works um, for protecting the rights of the immigrants. So I just decided to engage and to stay and to see what's happening. And we have this this ideal of having a sanctuary county. So that's my principal goal. Ah, and I do recall seeing you on the Arcata Plaza for weeks and weeks gathering signatures for the sanctuary ordinance. And if I understand correctly, enough um, validated signatures were secured where it is now a proposition on our November ballot to um, vote to make Humboldt County a sanctuary city. Yes. That congrats to you. Thank you. We are more than happy. We are very pleased and very grateful with people that people that signs. We have more than six thousand signatures. The Office of Elections validated the four thousand and three hundred, and that was more than enough to qualify to qualify for the ballots. And we are we have now the measure K. That's the name of the measure, and we are going to vote on it. Okay, I look forward to uh, the November 6th election for more reasons than one, actually. So I look forward to that. So that is uh, the work that you're performing in this community now. Um, Do you intend to stay around a little while? By now, I think my all my thoughts and all my energy, it's just in this objective, having a sanctuary county. I really think that um, I developed this work because I saw the sufferings over there. People is really in, they don't have any conditions. They don't have employment. They are, as I said, under harassment of criminals. Um, they are separate. They are tortured anyway. All the terrible things you can imagine. And now, just to present the possibility to offer them a safe place, a place where they can access to real justice and real representation in a county, that makes me more than um, desire to be here. I want to stay just to present that. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to the um, what you were studying and uh, related to um, violence and. Um, drug activity. Marijuana here in uh, California has been legalized for recreational use. What is the status of marijuana uh, in in Mexico? Marijuana is still illegal and is still highly criminal, criminalized um, over all the growers. They are just um, on j- under jail and um, without any possibility to access to justice, to legal justice. So that's the 
sort of condition that is now. Um, since the last elections, now we have a new president, he's started discussing the possibility to legalize marijuana. So that's that's good news, definitely. But what about the correlation of uh, marijuana as medicine in Mexico versus the uh, illegal recreational use. Um, have you done studies about the, the positive effects of marijuana in your studies? And um, how will that play a role in, in the event that marijuana is legalized in Mexico? Yeah, that's a good one. You know, the archive of the Humboldt Room Mm-hmm. has an entire file about um, the medicinal cannabis, the use of medicinal cannabis, and that was for me a gateway. Mm-hmm. You know, and now I understand all the arguments to legalize in 1996, and now I can't present some arguments to legalize over there. And of course, it is a, it is has to be considered like a right, right to health, and this is a plant that's mm-hmm. been there for centuries and uh, it was used as medicine anyway before being illegalized. So I I want to share with you a pretty humorous story. I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, My mother was uh, 40 when I was born so I had a non-traditional older mother. Um, She was ahead of her time in many ways although she was from um, rural uh, southern Mississippi she was, like I said, ahead of her time. She um, practiced a lot of healthy, holistic things in our upbringing. So my mom always had some root or some herb or something. And she met a, a, an abuela in Los Angeles somewhere. And my mother talked to everyone just like I talked to everyone. <laughs> and she met this little abuela and she was talking about the arthritis that she had. And the abuela um, told her about this miraculous cannabis plant and how she made a concoction to um, remedy the aches and pains from arthritis. So my mom went from nursery to nursery looking for a cannabis plant and each time she went they said no lady we don't have that and finally uh, a man who worked at a particular nursery said lady do you know what that is that's weed we can't sell that it's illegal (laughs) i suggest you find some seeds somewhere and uh grow your own So here comes my senior citizen mother when I was in high school. She got a couple of seeds from a cousin to be not named. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this cousin provided her with some seeds. She put some really rich soil in a uh, five-gallon bucket. And in the middle of uh, the Crenshaw District in southwest Los Angeles, in the at the height of the drug wars in 1985, wow. my mom grew a six, seven-foot, fully budded marijuana plant, chopped it down, added, um, added it to wintergreen alcohol, rubbing alcohol. After letting it soak for many days, she strained off the marijuana and she gave away these little bottles of alcohol to all of her little senior friends, all of the little church ladies, and got them hooked on marijuana (laughs) 
in the mid 80s. <laughs> so, I mean, that is my connection to marijuana as medicine in Mexico. That's my first indication. So the fact that it's been criminalized and um, it, all of the, the problems that it has, uh, that have ensued as a result, um, members of uh, residents of Mexico seeking asylum for the violence, home invasion robberies that occur here in uh, Humboldt County and elsewhere, um, with the legalization I'm hoping that maybe that criminalize—I mean that um, criminal element—is removed, and maybe more abuelas, like the lady that my mother met and my mother herself, can uh, carry on and use marijuana or cannabis for medicinal purposes. So, hopefully, I think I felt like we were in the middle age. Mm. about cannabis and now we have the possibility to study the plant not only the medicinal aspect but also the recreative like um, break down all the prejudices mm. and the, stig the stigmatization of a certain social group and we have that chance to spread the knowledge to mm -hmm. talk about uh, there is no more taboo especially in Humboldt County right right you know just the terms are changing uh, where um, I hear marijuana Um, referenced as flower or medicine um, instead of pot or weed or those things. So, you know, I will say it's really funny that this discussion is about Latina scholars and it started off. <laughs> but I mean, this is the source of your of your studies. So it makes sense. If you're just tuning in, this is Thursday Night Talk, The Race Beat. I'm Lorna Bryant and joining me is a PhD candidate, Brenda, well, full name, Jessica Brenda Perez Mendoza, also known as Brenda to the radio bilingual world here and here um, at KHSU. Um, so let's talk about um, Latinas in academia. Let's start with Humboldt State um, Specifically, you did a little bit of research about uh, the demographics here at Humboldt. Tell me a little bit about that. I find interesting things. I'm going to start for the students and I'm going to start for the females. I mean, we are most of the 50%. The Latino um, females are 1,700 um, around. We represent the 33%. We are the second largest group after the white students. Um, in like, if we see this number, if we are the second largest group, and we see also the professors, that is not represented there. We mm. have only 25 professors, which means less than the five percent. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, what is what is showing to me these uh, graphics um, available for everybody at hsu.com is that the representation of the professionals of education in Humboldt State in regarding the Latino community is not in equal conditions. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe um, a point to think about for the authorities at HSU to encourage mm -hmm. more professors, even graduate students from the Latinx community to incorporate themselves to the professor, you know, um, instructor. Mm -hmm. um, there is one interesting thing I want to notice here regarding the students. There is one 
um, section called the non-resident alien. And um, there is almost 2% of students. And I want to I wanna talk, I want to have this chance to talk to them and say if anything, they, um, they face discrimination, especially in these times, they have to, to look for groups like the Latinx Center, like the Women's Resource Center, even Radio Bilingue or Central del Pueblo. They have to, to be close to this group because it's at 2% and 12 of them are women. Mm -hmm. And I just cannot un imagine this group being under discrimination. I mean, I can, but I don't want to. Yes, I, I'm assuming that 2% is made up of a DACA recipients. Um, I'm surprised it's only 2% actually, because in just the last year and a half in communicating with students around campus, I have encountered several students who are DACA recipients, um, far larger than, than um, it seems to me that that number represents. Um, I wonder if all of the students are recognized as DACA um, recipients that make up that um, the demographics there? That's a good question. Last year, we made a, a big, big rally with the students that were in this danger of losing the DACA status. And that was, for me, dramatic. That was the first time I know these um, Latino, Latinas students, more of them from, uh, they were still in mathematics and science. They were hyper intelligent and they were just facing the reality saying like okay now we we won't have this paper that once we had as a promise of integration to the society and we have to 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 keep forward we mm -hmm. have to look other chances but that was like the first call of attention for me under the trump administration absolutely um let's talk about your, how you came to, um, uh, how you came to pursue higher education uh, as a PhD candidate. Did you face any opposition from your community, from um, your family, even coming to the U.S. to to further your education? How how did that work out for you? Yeah, that was a long journey. I was born in a little super little town in Puebla, mm -hmm. that's central Puebla. And there, most of the women uh, don't study. And if they study, they said, it's until I get married. It's just like a process in life. Oh, something like, to do. Yeah, something to do meanwhile. Wow. To find the prince, you know. Ah. Uh, that wasn't my case. Uh, fortunately, um, my father decided to change, to go to the to other city where there were more chances to access to education. Um, after a while, my father just uh, just asked me, keep asking me, like, why you wanna um, keep with the masters when I finish the finish the first degree? Why you just don't wanna work or maybe find the husband? So uh, even if we we went out of the little town, the the family is a heavy structure, you know, it's very conservative in Mexico, at least. Uh, that's why I decided just to to keep looking for grants in foreign countries because Mexico it's super machista you know it's ah. like a country very very dominated by men and also in in the institutions in the, at the universities 
So I decided to go looking for other studies in countries like France and Canada. And there I just find like a very group of, of brave women, brave women that were fighting for the right, for example, women from Middle East, Uh, in France, fighting for the right to wear their religious symbols. Right. And that was very interesting to me. I just decided to to follow the example, to follow the protest. They were occupying the streets, who was for me like a revelation, since in Mexico women tend to be more, you know, more, uh, peaceful or just mm -hmm. don't... Reserved. Reserved. They don't, they don't are in the streets. Or, right. And, well, French women are much, much more liberal, as well as Canadians, I really never thought of coming of the U.S. I was avo avoiding the route because, <laughs> just because, we have a long story, right? Mexico, U.S. Um, yes, and it's not over. It is yeah. not over. And um, it looks like old, old tales are reviving with Trump. And anyway, um, so I was just avoiding. I decided to go Latin America. I, I, f I continue my studies in Bolivia and Argentina, so I, I could make my master's. Um, after that, when I was in Mexico thinking, okay, how can I offer clues for understanding this war on drugs? I'm going to start for the most noble plant, which is the marijuana, which is the cannabis for us. And I look at the map and I keep looking at the map. Okay, <laughs> California is legal and Northern California is like the grower point, the biggest mm. grow point. Marijuana Mecca. Yes. <laughs> so I want to see that. And I just, I honestly, I just talk like, okay, I'm going to go two months and return. Nothing else because all the filters since you are in the airport are just two million. Mm. Sincerely. You have to face the agents uh, with Latino last name, uh -huh. um, looking at you and checking in all your notebooks, uh, checking every every single space of your backpack mm -hmm. and making a long, long quest, um, list of questions. Why are you here? What are you looking here? Are you want to stay? Do you want to, you know, like these type of questions. Um, so you have to face that. You have to face discrimination. You have to face, oh my God, barriers, social barriers. So all that is uh, like a daily, daily fight. Mm -hmm. um, after two months, I just find out that universe around cannabis and mm -hmm. I called and renounced to that knowledge. So I decided to make it formal. I talked to my university, I said like, okay, I find out this, I need to come back. Mm -hmm. So I came back under the supervision of one professor of anthropology here at HSU. And meanwhile, I was developing my, my studies, uh, my research in the fieldwork here in Humboldt, in places like Honeydew, Holmesblad, Redway, uh, Garberville. I just uh, continued to discovering my community and the struggles that they are facing in rural environment, in rural spaces, um, labor exploitation, or this type of subjects that I just see like a continuation of that terrible violence, that the cruel violence, but in here. So mm -hmm. I said like, okay, this is, this is just like um, something I can keep looking at. Mm -hmm. And that's why I decide to present again to my university and they are happy to have me here. I think they, for them, 
the, this is a big door to just see, have a look in the industry, in a legal industry. Right. So I know um, the exploitation of women is prevalent uh, in this community and I guess elsewhere um, in terms of marijuana cultivation and um, at marijuana, um, uh, the whole process before distribution. Is that something that is encountered in Mexico as well, uh, where women are uh, are um, exploited in the industry? Definitely, like um, the same the same models are, re- are repeated there, like mm. exploitation. Always the women are the ones that have the less income, mm-hmm. um, and I just see reflect in every level in marijuana industry or in any jobs, even here when I think in the women that are lecturer, um, if I compare that with the women that have a tenure, like a fixed position, they are less mm-hmm. at HSU. Or the, when I see the um, low income of all the students, the female, the Latina females are the 56% of that group in a struggle. So mm-hmm. I know students that are, for example, sleeping in the cars, you know, and they are not only Latinas, but uh, a big group, the housing. Right. Know, that's another thing. And that's something that's just like this the structure of society, I guess. Absolutely. Um, if you're just tuning in, this is Thursday Night Talk, The Race Beat. I'm speaking with a Latina scholar from Mexico, Jennifer, excuse me, Jennifer, <laughs> Jessica <laughs> Brenda Men, uh, Perez Mendoza. She is... Um, uh, study, uh, she's studying, or you were studying uh, Latin American studies at uh, National Autonomous University in Mexico, and you're a guest researcher um, for our Department of Anthropology here at Humboldt State. If you would like to join in the conversation, feel free to call 826 4805 or the toll free number 800 640 5911. Or you can text a question if you're a little shy and you don't want to be on the air. That number is 707-492-5478. Now, you were talking about your family upbringing, uh, Brenda. Are you the only child or do you have other siblings? And what has their academic path been if you do have siblings? I have a sister. And she, yeah, she just finished the university and just got married. Like that was it. That was she followed there, um, like the family rule. Oh, okay. If okay. we must say, he, she married the only boyfriend she got, and since they were very young, they were boyfriend. Mm. And so for that, I think with that, my family can be satisfied, right? Like <laughs> they have it there. You have one, um, one daughter that took the traditional path of a woman, and then there's you. But you know, sometimes we have to, we have to make our own path. And by doing that, you are um, a positive reflection to young Latinas coming up. So do you have that opportunity interacting with young Latinas, uh, mentorship, or have you had that opportunity um, back at home in Mexico? Yes. Uh, back at home in Mexico, I have this enormous chance to work with um, young women that are in the first year at the university. And we were just um, 
having sure that they have all the knowledge, how to access to a grant, have the access to several type of uh, social security, health insurance, all these type of things that sometimes you don't even know that university can provide you. And here, you know what happened here, I prefer just to learn from them. Even the youngest have something to teach me as as national as uh, Chicana, Chicanx has, as they identify themselves. Ah. It's so interesting. Okay. Um, what about in our local public schools? Have you uh, had the opportunity to interact with young Latina women um, in our K through 12 system here? Yes. Last year, in fact, I met a wonderful group of Latinas women and we decided to make a fundraiser. And we start by little, small thing like a small idea and it becomes a big <laughs> fundraiser that help a lot of people after the earthquakes in Mexico mm-hmm. and that's what that's, that told me that showed me the, the really the potency and the power of Latinas here as students I just saw them like this big group of of uh, community like similar like ants like yes. uh, like all working in a rhythm all knowing what to do we just put together a bunch of money to send yeah. over there. Oh, great, great. So, you know, the, the you talked about um, not seeing a reflection of uh, Latinos in the classroom here. Um, there are, like uh, Dr. Christine Mata, she was uh, scheduled to be a guest here. She, there was a scheduling cl- conflict. She has a PhD. She's the dean of students here. She's a young uh, Latina woman, first-generation college student in her family from East L.A. And, I mean, that's significant. As a person of color my, myself, it, it's more significant um, in the educational process if I see someone who is a reflection of me. Um, I didn't get that so much here, um, but I, I have positive role models in my family, thankfully. But with this being um, labeled a Hispanic-serving institution, there should definitely be a greater reflection of um, uh, Latino um, Latinos in, in higher ed here. And unfortunately, there isn't. I think in the WASC... Um, study that took place, the accreditation, one of the things that um, was discussed or one of the findings was um, more resources for students of color um, here and a need for diversity in in the classroom with faculty and also here with staff. So maybe you stick around a little longer. And you can add to uh, professional status, um, maybe even as a professor here at Humboldt State. How awesome would that be? I would love to. <laughs> I mean, I have this assignment to contribute wherever I am. So um, if it's HSU, I will be honored to represent one of these largest group of Latinas, Latinx community at HSU. I had the privilege, I guess, to visit almost every one of the classrooms for environmental studies. Meanwhile, I was in the sanctuary campaign. I, I decided to inform students, which is a critical mass, which I, I think is a group that has to question 
every step of the government, the local government, but also society, how it works. So I decided just to visit the classrooms to talk about know your rights as a voter, as a young voter, register voting, and also to talk about the sanctuary. And I was, uh, meanwhile, I was what I was explaining this. I, I just had this extraordinary experience to see how the faces of my, my Latinas partners, the students were just changing. They were smiling. They were feeling like, okay, yes, she's talking something that I can understand mm. because probably my, their families were in the struggle. Right. Probably, very probably. And so I, I really think this is a group of, of people that we have to empower. Absolutely. The Latinas students here. Absolutely. And you are... Um, positive, positive role model. I mean, that's just talking about the students smiling and their demeanor changing. That is definitely an indication of uh, the power of having someone who looks like you um, in, in, a, in a leadership role. So thank you for that, Brenda. Thank you. Thank you. So as I was preparing for uh, this program, I, I did a little bit of research and um, I found a couple of articles that were really interesting and I want your feedback on this. One of the articles was uh, Four Obstacles for Latinas in Higher Education and Why It's Time for a Change. And they actually gave four reasons, even though I guess it was an honorable mention. Um, and you've hit pretty much on all of these things. So you're legitimizing this article. <laughs> the first is cultural and gender roles and the, the expectations. You know, you talked about your dad. You know, well, when are you going to get that husband? Or, um, do you need to follow up with education? Um, language barrier and the application process. Um, the third was culture shock and discrimination. And the fourth, social economic inequality and access to health care. And uh, the, the honorable mention, the mental health risk. So let's talk about that a little bit. I would like to start for the last one, which is very interesting. Mental... A mental health risk. Health risk. Well, I was looking at the studies, but I also can't can tell from my own experience about depression. The highly rate of depression between the Latinas um, is just something to think about. And I think it's because the isolation, the discrimination. And since this administration, we can tell that there is rising the numbers of people that's feeling just shamed, just uh, worried all the time. They don't want to speak in Spanish in public spaces. I've been also at the university having this challenge of every time I see a Latina, I say hola. Mm -hmm. And I start speaking in Spanish. I just want them to embrace the, the wonderful thing of being bilingual. Why not? Uh, instead of just feeling, you know, like if having something at risk about their identity. So you have a greater chance of seeing someone who looks just like you in this community than I do. And I've been places in public with uh, my Caucasian friends and I would encounter an African-American and we would speak and in some cases hug each other like we were happy to see each other for the first time in years. And after we would part ways, my Caucasian friends would say, did you know that person? No. 
Well, why did you hug them? Well, it's rare that I see someone who looks just like me. So it is it is a spectacle and we are going to make the most of it. So I'm sure you have dealt with that. The hugs and the, yes, whenever I see an African-American woman who I don't know, I'll, hey, how are you? You know, are you new here? Do you need to know where to find hair care products? You know, so I try (laughs) to make that, you know, it's the little things. It is definitely the little things. Um, The language barrier. Wow. That's a good one. Just last weekend, I just received a big rejection from a woman in a supermarket that didn't want to offer me a service because she said, I don't understand. And she started having like a panic attack just because of my color skin, I'm guessing. And I just really, I I felt sorry for her, but at the same time I felt, wow, this is this is really this racism. I must say it with all the words because I don't find another expression. And I felt bad, of course. This is something that affects us uh, in general, like someone that tries to be integrated in this community, that tries to use the language as a tool to to put down barriers Mm -hmm. and one day you can just face this or people just asking you why not why is no, you are not citizen i find one woman in the museum telling me that when i wanted to enter i'm so like wow and that's here yes wow and you know i'm i'm scrutinized uh, in a similar way you speak so well for an african-american oh, <laughs> how do you think that is a compliment <laughs> So yeah, so when when I'm faced with, well, you speak so well, I usually um, force a person to face their own racism and uh, recognize what they've said by saying, compared to what? And if they, no one has ever been able to answer me. It always comes out stuttering and stammering and, uh, (laughs) well, you're just so eloquent. Not a compliment, but thank you anyway. Goodbye. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's terrible how we are judged by the way we speak. Yes. And that's, it's unfortunate. It is. It well, seems like it's never enough yes. and good enough yeah. anyway. And that's something that I have troubles in, in the telephone, with the services, in the health system, everywhere that I have to face authorities. They first look at me, they're first looking at me, and then they decide, no, you don't speak English mm. perfectly. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a barrier, and that's a barrier that is, it's building up, I guess. Yeah, I think so. You know, the Beatles had British accents, but they sang in American. <laughs> so when, when you're faced with, uh, you know, negative um, uh, backlash, Say, well, shall I speak with an American accent for you to understand? <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll be your ploy, and you know, have people face their own uh, discrimination and pre- pre- uh, prejudice yeah. um, that way. Yeah. Wow. Uh, what about uh, the culture shock? Did you did you face any culture shock when you came here to? Well, it, I'm guessing this wasn't your first visit to uh, the United States. Was it? No, it wasn't. Okay, so so you've been to other parts of uh, of the United States. Humboldt County is unique. <laughs> so how did you fare with uh, adjusting to this uh, community here? Wow, 
I want to <laughs> long pause. I want to give a number. For example, in my university, we have three hundred forty-nine thousand students, and now I am living in a town of eighteen thousand people. Wait, wait, three hundred thousand students? Yes. One university. Yeah, one university. Three hundred thousand students. Yeah. That's more than all of Humboldt County. I know. Wow. So that was the size of my cultural shock. I used to live very close by the university. It's called the university city. It's a city itself. You have to move inside with a bus or a car because the distances are just long. And it's Mexico City is just a big jungle there. And the university is one big part of the city. Uh, so the cultural shock, let's start by the, really, really by the, um, the way the people look at diverse people. Mm -hmm. I was just for me like, wow. I was um, used to talk with students from everywhere in the world. Um, I have beloved friends from Japan, from Cameroon, from Argentina, anyway. And now I arrived to a university where the Latino students are uh, in a segment, you know. Sometimes I feel like these centers are, are more like ghettos. Mm -hmm. than real spaces of integration. Oh. But that's my way to feel. I have to be closer, uh, maybe. Um, I don't know, I just feel certain sadness for for these people that doesn't embrace diversity, that mm -hmm. they are fearing to talk to different people. Yeah. Um, did you encounter uh, difficulty here on campus at all? Here on campus, no, no, not really. No, I, my own space, my the principal space I used, which is the library and the Humboldt room. Their people is just lovely. Mm. They are even interested in uh, start a section for the Latinx population in that archive because they realize they that Humboldt County doesn't know the people that lives here and doesn't know enough the Latinx population. It's just all about what the TV says and mm. they want to contribute to know more about the Latinx. Wow. Oh, okay. And that's why you're still here and I'm yes. glad of that. So what about, um, yeah, we talked about the cultural and gender roles and expectations. Um, let's talk about that just a little bit more. Um, so... It's a male-dominated country in Mexico. Um, gender roles, are are they rigid where it is expected you do this, 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 and this if you're a woman and you only do this, 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 and this if you're a man? Definitely. Oh. It is that rigid. Okay. It is Mexico City is more open-minded, but my little town is just uh, this way where if you have 22 and you have no children, man, you have to be worried immediately. Like women start to be pregnant at 21, 20, mm. but that's like an accomplishment, you know? It's just like, wow, you yeah. made it. You have a bunch of babies and you have 25. Because we are we are born and destined to be mothers, huh? Exactly. Huh. Wow. So there is another article that I uh, read. Um, uh, it was from Cosmopolitan uh, Magazine from 2007. It was originally entitled Divided Dreams. And this article is Why Latinas 
students' path to higher education is more complex than ever. And um, they're the points that are made in this article. Culture conflict, the quest to fit in, unstoppable ambitions, and fighting back against hate. Now, the one thing that struck me is the quest to fit in. And that's something that I um, have experienced and I didn't know it was a, a, a name for it um, as I studied, and that's imposter syndrome, where um, students of color in predominantly white colleges have a, a negative psychological experience by just trying to fit in and you kind of lose your own identity while trying to fit in in this place where you are evidently different. Uh, have you experienced that? Definitely. I mean, younger, the university is a space where all the social classes can get mixed, but when you have these um, these first experiences with the high class in Mexico, uh, you really wanna be modern, or you really wanna have the heels and the, you know starting all the branding stuff. Yeah. After a while, and that was when I I just left the country. Mm -hmm. I just I find myself. I just look at the country for the first time. I look at the indigenous and the all the conflicts and I look my culture as something extremely valuable and my country as an extreme experience of diversity and I just decide to remember all my roots and my grandma who barely speaks Spanish she speaks indigenous languages and she used the, it was an abuela that used the marijuana to, to cure mm -hmm. and so I decided to find out more about my my elders and to go back to the basics if, if we can say so and yeah, I'm going maybe against the, the flow in yeah. a certain way. And I just kept doing that. S some people told me like, oh, you are like, you are so beautiful. Why you don't use tighter clothes or why you are using those braids or why you are a um, costume less Mexican? You know, when I use my skirts and my, or my traditional clothes that I use because I love it and it's for me. Right. Something usual. They just think I'm costume. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, um, ethnocentrism and xenophobia and all those things, you know, those are terms we shouldn't even be using, but I think they're more prevalent now more than ever, um, yes. unfortunately, unfortunately. If you're just tuning in, this is Thursday Night Talk, The Race Beat. I'm Lorna Bryant, your host, and my guest is Jessica Brenda Perez-Mendoza. We're talking about Latinas in higher ed or Latinas in academia or Latina scholars. Take your pick. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we only have about uh, 10 or 12 minutes more. I want to talk about your work here at KHSU and how that came to be. Wow, Jessica Eden, if you are hearing us, of course, a big hope to her. We love her. She's our producer and she discovered us. <laughs> we can say so. Discovered you? Definitely. How did, that, how did that happen? We were invited for an interview here at KHSU for talking about Dia de los Muertos last year. We put an altar 
right in front of the courthouse to to honor all the immigrants that died on the border and to you know to present to the supervisors all concern because of all the deportations and the violence and the cages you were interested they they invite us for an interview and at the end of that that interview jesse eden just decide to to invite us hey guys you girls you want to make a proof a song proof for a radio show and i just think radio is always i always thought i've been thinking i keep thinking radio is powerful absolutely it's pure power and i just jump on and say like yes please let's do this we can we have to have we have to take all the spaces available as latinas right now we have to fit under and if not we have to teach we have to inform we have to represent correctly what we are um to you know to put the tv demonstrations down right i feel the same way um as an african-american woman so so you never done radio before never never been a guest on a radio show before that yeah i did that okay but but beyond that you've never hosted your own show and now you're almost a year in um the show uh charlando con la raza uh translate that title for me yes charlando is like talking with the raza oh talking about the race yes okay yes and you you are co-host with who sochil cabrera and johanna miraya and those are both uh, students here at Humboldt State. Are they still students here? Yes. So, and what are some of the things that you talk about on that program? We want to talk about topics that are in the mind of the Latinx population, you know, politics, economy, but we, we talk also about language barrier, culture, food, music. So it's more about the agenda is built more about the news principally because that's our main concern that people get informed about their rights. So we talk, for example, we have a section of Latinos for cannabis. So we talk about the right of the consumers, the right to have a second chance to clear all the file and these type of things. But we also talk about refuge with people that was here in the US in before. And we talk about football. So Football by the American definition of football or football by the rest of the world's definition of football? <laughs> I guess the rest of the world, yeah, <laughs> okay. football, soccer. So football and the metric system, those are the Ooh. two things that we haven't caught up uh, with the rest of the world uh, with. So maybe we'll one day get to the metro metric system and maybe one day we'll recognize football as the world sport, not that oblong pigskin ball that we're <laughs> used to <laughs> it's the truth so um and it's almost like a variety show so there's music intermingled in there and uh, like beautiful music um indigenous music you've had people singing by way of a cell phone into a microphone for <laughs> from other countries so you've had guests on your show from uh, Peru, from Mexico, from any other country? Um, yeah. Name them. We opened that for the international audience. Uh, Johanna is from Peru, is from a town in the mountains of Peru. So she had this very authentic point of view about how it's been an immigrant inside 
Peru, the country, and then an international immigrant uh, in the U.S. And Sochil is a local. She was uh, she's from Fortuna. She lives oh. there, and she's a student of Humboldt State. I speak. I'm gonna make a parenthesis, but speaking of local students, they are only that's that shock to me that they are not even the seven percent local. Wait a minute. Fourteen percent local students, the local people that come to HSU, they are fourteen percent, mm. and that speak to me like about the offer maybe or what the HSU has to encourage to have the to have the people to receive the knowledge here and have to stay here to, to you know to go back to society and make improvements there. Right. Anyway, I was talking. Uh, so Johanna, she's from Fortuna. No. Social. 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 She's from Fortuna and she's binational. Her family is from Oaxaca, Mexico. So we have these three women speaking about variety and um, we call all our contacts from around, really, from <laughs> around the world. Right. And I mean, it's a beautiful program. I can only listen to part of it because um, um, es español es muy, muy pequeño. Muy poquito. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I try to listen and I can um, understand some things. Um, but you're speaking to a larger audience. It's not about me. It's speaking to the Latino community here and, um, and, and beyond. And I just want to thank you for, you know, just coming in as a scholar and jumping right in and being a host of, in a matter of moments, being the host of or co-host of your own talk show on Radio Bilingue, 103.3? Yes. Okay. And uh, we also stream here uh, at khsu.org. There is a link to to stream Radio Bilingue right here. And Johanna from, from Charlando Con La Raza, Johanna has uh, forged on her own. She has her own program as well. Yes. And what is the name of that program? That is Naturaleza y Comunidad, which is nature and community. And did Johanna have any um, dreams of radio or any um, radio background prior to joining us at KHSU? No. Wow. We all three, we were like the first time ever. Wow, and uh, the same for Socha? Yes. Wow. We just enjoy it. it. And it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful program. When does uh, Charlando Con La Raza air? That's Tuesday at 7 p.m., Wednesday at 7 a.m., and Saturday at 1 p.m. Okay. And uh, na natu say it Naturaleza again? y Comunidad. And when does that air? That's right after Charlando. Uh, same days every time it airs that show is on yeah. so i have one important thing to ask you of course can you help me with my spanish so i can listen to charlando con la raza i would on love to okay. learn now of course so um i remember uh, a few things uh fa en la escuela en espanol mm -hmm. i i yeah i got an fa twice and me aprieta mucho los zapatos. <laughs> I remember that from my textbook. My my shoes are not too tight, but uh, that's okay. Okay. <laughs> my my shoes are just fine. But I remember that more than anything. Still got me my F. But I I, I really want to um, brush up on my my Spanish. I'm from a family of six. Uh, it's six of us: three girls, three boys. 
and all of my brothers are fluent in Spanish. Um, as one brother um, worked in Mexico in um, Mexicali for several years, so he became fluent. And another is in the floral industry. So just working with um, other farmers, he speaks Spanish, and another brother in Texas it's the girls in my family that are lacking. So we need to catch up. We so, will. So I'm relying on you, Brenda. Of course. Okay. Well done. Okay. So can you give me a lesson, the word of the day? The word of the day will be orgullo. Oh, I can't That's spell hard. it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, say it again. Orgullo. Orgullo? Sí. Perfecto. Uh, ¿Cómo se dice in English? Pride. Ah... Beautiful word. Beautiful word. I can't spell it for me, so I'm going to write it down. It's spelled O-R-G-U-L-L-O. Orgullo. Sí, perfecto. Ah, that is beautiful. That is a lovely word, and that is what we both have. Um, in the work we do, in our culture, and in ourselves. Yeah. That is beautiful. I think we may have a call. And if we do, it'll probably be the last comment of the night. Do, would you like to share anything um, anything else with us as listeners about uh, your whole experience in academia here at Humboldt State in the United States? Yes. I want to encourage people in the academy to engage socially. No, to go back to society, to apply all the knowledge. Not the classroom is an empty space if you don't apply your knowledge in society and make improvements and make positive impacts and in help. At the end of the of the way, it's just to help. You know, you can have all the degrees, you can be a PhD, but if you don't return a little bit to society, this is nonsense. Mm -hmm. And I just want to share that this path that bring me, brought me here and keep me here, it's part of this um, objective I have to help. Mm -hmm. And it's not only because of my own ambition, which could be legitimate, but it's because I've been, I've been in presence of suffering mm -hmm. there in Mexico. And I don't wanna just close my eyes and stop listening. No, I wanna do something. And I believe Humboldt County can be this little drop in this ocean of changes. Local government says we cannot do nothing to change federal policies. I say, no, you are wrong. You can be an example of good government locally and changes. Local changes can just break this shell of authoritarianism. Can you go further and represent people that live here? We are the second largest group mm -hmm. in Humboldt. We are the second largest group at HSU. We need to be fairly represented. We need to be proud. We need to be able to access to health system. We need to be able to be happy, to work, to be orgullosos, to have yes. pride. Yes, absolutely. And uh you know, that's a motivation for me. Don't be a part of the problem. Be a part of the solution. And I'm working on that myself. And I think we will end with the word of the day. Orgullo. Or <laughs> Say it again. Orgullo. Orgullo. Muy bien. Pr 
pride. Perfect. Pride. Yes. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you, uh, thank you for being a brilliant Latina scholar here at Humboldt State. Thank you. It's my honor. Yes. Um, also, thank you uh, to... The, um, to our engineer Michael Rocaforte and thank you for tuning in to Thursday Night Talk The Race Beat a place for in-depth discussions about race, culture and identity. Again through our conversations and understanding we will discover our dis- differences aren't so different after all. Let's be kind to each other. I'm Lorna Bryant thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.